0: Welcome to Mad About AV, your industry-leading source for insights about all things AV and interactive systems. At Mad Systems, we take pride in delivering cutting-edge exhibits and interactives that evolve alongside your industry and leave a lasting impact. And this podcast will let us bring you along for the ride. It's time to show you why we're
1: Mad About AV.
0: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Mad About AV, a Mad Systems podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. Make sure that as you're listening along, you're going to our website, MadSystems.com. Again, MadSystems.com for more information on our solutions and services and other Mad Systems content. And you can also find more episodes of Mad About AV on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous episodes as well as notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's episode of the show, we're breaking down the exciting applications, technologies, and strategies that are bringing museums to life. Designing media for museum spaces places an extreme importance on interactivity, education, engagement, and just broader technology impact. So with our conversation today, we hope to highlight the role that technology plays in museum media design and how to think strategically about the whole design process from start to finish. So we've got some all-around cool guys with us today. Rejoining us is Maris Ensing, founder for MAD Systems. And pulling from 40 years of experience designing multimedia and numerous technologies, I'd like to welcome our new guest today, Steve Bressler, founder and creative director for Monadnock Media. Maris, Steve, great to have you both on. How are y'all doing?
1: Good. Good to be on.
2: Good morning. Yes, it's a beautiful day here.
0: Well, I wish I could uh, enjoy that beautiful day with you, but we'll have to do an in-person podcast here sometime soon. In the meantime... We'll just have to share our insights remotely. So Maris, Steve, I'm pleased to have you both on and I'm looking forward to breaking this down. So let's go ahead and jump right in. I want to start off by talking about how you both approach media design in this day and age with the context of cutting edge technologies, uh, what end users are looking for out of their experiences, maybe some of the facilities limitations that have been brought on by COVID, for example. So let's go ahead and jump in how do you start looking at a project when it's time to uh, you know approach media design? and how is that different from the way you would have looked at it, say, you know, even ten years ago?
1: well, i can I can speak to that. so for for Monadnock, what we always look to try to do with museum uh, media experiences is to create, Tr- figure out how to create new experiences for visitors that they can't get on their phones, on compute, on computers, laptops, in the theaters, or on public TV. In other words, come to this museum and show me the visitor our truly unique experience. So that's our our continuous. That's a continuous challenge, a continual challenge, I should say. And for us, it starts with diving in, immersing ourselves in the content and asset research, and. That combined with a really um, strong knowledge of all the different technologies available to us, which means keeping up with all new technologies as they come out, how to use them to help tell a story, in a way, in, 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 and and create a real experience as opposed to just well here's a touch screen, here's a theater pre- here's a, a theater presentation, much more environmental than simply using the technology as technology in a space. It's more like, how can we create a really cool space that helps support the story and embed technology in that space in a way that visitors just aren't used to seeing in any other venue?
2: Yeah, and I would quite agree with that. It's definitely a case of whenever we work with Steve, we we start with the story as, as you should. And then, you know, Steve will look at different um, ways of creating environments to best tell that story, um, interesting new ways of doing so, and creating something that people just cannot have at home. And that is that is important. Um, it needs to be educational, it needs to be fun, and it needs to have something unique to it. And so that those are the conversations where we normally start. It's normally a case of, let's talk about the story, and then let's see how we can hang we can hang it together using maybe the latest technology, maybe 150-year-old technology, whatever it takes in order to create the best possible end result.
1: A good, a good example of that, Daniel, is we are in the process of finishing up an installation for the uh, – there's an, a major renovation that's being gone on at the Truman Presidential Library and Museum in Independence, Missouri – and one of the stories we, we were tasked with telling was the beginnings of the Cold War. And if, for those of us who know our history, know your history, um, think back to the World War II. After that war, Europe was in shambles, and the world was in pieces. And Truman uh, becomes president because FDR dies April 12th, 1945. And he steps into the presidency in a world which is kind of just shattered. And so what we did is we came up with a concept for we brought you into a blown-out World War II building in in uh, somewhere in Europe, and we projection map onto the rubble onto the brick walls that you're surrounded by, and we projection map onto the whole space. There there's uh, I think two major walls that form a corner, and then rubble that's in that space, and we actually use the rubble to project at sometimes. Uh, a map of Europe where the rubble is actually in the shape of Europe. So to do that required some interesting geometry challenges with projection technology. But and interestingly enough, a lighting projector instead of lighting ar- lighting equipment, lighting uh, lighting instruments. Maris, you haven't you haven't seen it in person yet, have you?
2: I haven't yet, but we spent a lot of time talking about that particular one. It was, it's kind of interesting, and this is where some of the stuff that we've been doing over the past couple of years really came alive in that um, originally when we talked about it, Steve really wanted to projection map the the main imagery on the walls. And uh, we, we initially talked about putting a gobo projector to put some um, fixed imagery onto the rubble. And when we started talking about it, and... You know, I said to Steve, you know, with the new technology we have for the price of a decent gobo projector, we could put a video projector in there. And the difference to the client really became a case of, okay, he needs to create some additional media. But in return for that, we now create an additional surface on the rubble where we can projection map additional imagery that can be video, it can be still, it can just look like a gobo, but we can bring it to live. And that way he has got another an an, an additional canvas to extend the story within that space. And so you know, these are the kind of the kind of conversations we have very early on when we go into that kind of a process, and it's 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 a real fun part where we're bouncing ideas around and just figuring out how best we can do this. So we ended up replacing um, the conventional lighting that we would have had in a space like this with nothing but projectors because it is now affordable and it is low maintenance and it can be done really well um you know with a reasonable amount of effort so these are the kind of changes um that steve is talking about that we're now seeing which which just adds excitement for for the for the public they're walking into a space and there's more that happens and it is most certainly very different from anything they would experience anywhere else
1: right so instead of having six or seven uh theatrical lighting fixtures with gobos on them that come on during different parts of the program in what we call the rubble theater, we have, as Mara said, a, a small video projector that gives us a big enough, bright enough image that we kind of soft edge blend into that rubble environment. And instead of being um, forced with a fixed gobo or even forced with a rotating gobo, which is, you know, somewhat limited, we've got motion to play with uh, suddenly. And so it really adds a another dynamic element to the theater experience.
2: And that kind of works really well when, you know, in like ten years ago you, you mentioned how would have been how would it have been different ten years ago or more than that. Now Steve naturally likes to create these environments. We've worked with Steve for the best part of 20 years and you know he really likes to create these type of environments to to give people more of a feel of um, of what the story is about even before the storytelling starts. But If you imagine, you know, a similar story could have been done with something like a big touchscreen, which is what we often see um, being used. And with the... Um, expectations of a young generation, and and uh, everybody always cringes when I say this, but a, a generation that swiped before they wiped, we no longer are at the point where a touchscreen or something like that creates a lasting memory. Um, they have them at home from when they're two years old. And um, when you're creating an environment like this, where you really put them into the story and then start telling the story, you're creating something very different and much more powerful that will most certainly stay with a lot more people. So that's the fun in you know the tools that we now have that are affordable um, and that we can use for, for these kind of applications.
1: So the challenge is a creative challenge is how do you use... Technologies, be that as Mara said, old or new, in a way uh, that the visitors don't experience them. And there's nothing wrong with touchscreens. There's nothing wrong with big touch tables or touch walls. But how can you create something that's not just a big, oversized browser that you can do on, you know, on your phone or or your iPad or your or your tablet? Um, and that's our challenge um, as media designers to kind of come up with ways of embedding. The technology in environments and in spaces. Sometimes it can be interactive, and I'll talk about that in a second, uh, in an innovative way. And by interactive, you know, we've worked with Maris on you can t- you can touch an object to make a space come alive, to make something happen, cause an effect. Give me the visitor some some uh, agency in my experience, and that's what we're trying to do more and more in novel ways.
0: All right, I'm going to jump over to uh, another follow-up here based on everything you're laying out. At what point in the media design process, now that uh, you have all of this kind of interactive and cutting-edge technology supporting museum designs, at what point in the process do you start considering which pieces of technology you want to use How do you know if you need to go with the uh, most interactive, engaging, you know, media supporting technologies? When do you go a little simpler? How do you balance things to make sure they're not overwhelming for the end user as you're ideating which technologies to use? Go ahead and break that down when you start and then what the process is like uh, for the media design process.
1: I go back to what I said before. You start with what stories, what are the major interpretive goals? Of the museum, and which ones lend themselves to some type of media experience, and that's based on research, and that's based on the assets that you have, that you can find as far as archival imagery, photographs, footage, uh, ephemera. So a lot of thinking goes into that part. Then, when you start to come up with these different ways of telling the story, you're you're searching just like any good uh, exhibit design. You're you're trying to think about your visitor experience as they course through the museum. You don't want them to have too many of the same types of experiences. So, you want textures, okay? Multiple media textures. So, there could be a realistic environment like the Rubble Theater I talked about. There could be a more abstracted environment which involves interactivity, but not just a big touchscreen. It may be it may be uh, a big touchscreen that's got oh, I don't know, it's concealed some way and some certain parts of it are touchable in an environment. Other ways, uh, other textures kind of involve actually manual controls like a joystick. Consider that. That's old fashioned, right? You put a kid in front of a joystick today, they still have a great time if the payoff is, you know, is worthwhile. And and sometimes it's just a soundscape. Sometimes it's an intimate experience where it's a one-on-one and you are listening to a store an oral history of somebody, but I don't mean just an oral history of somebody. You have to put that person, the visitor, in an intimate environment so that can appreciate an intimate story. If you put an intimate story on a headset, for example, a handset, for example, and you expect somebody to lift it up to the ear or you make it available to them on their on their phone, their smartphone, that's not intimate. It's you're just walking around the museum with something up, up to your ear. If you bring me into a small space, and I hear an intimate story about, uh, you know, somebody's experience, powerful experience, I can focus on it. I'm not distracted by other visitors. I'm not just holding a phone up to my ear or a stick up to my ear. You know, that's some of the thinking that goes into creating, what I say, different textures.
2: And that is really what we're seeing at Truman in particular, aren't we, Steve, where, you know, you you worked with the designer to create these spaces, um, to create, small areas where that are just tucked away where you can tell some of these stories where within the flow of the storyline as you're walking through that museum you end up with um with the location where you just want to tell one of these kind of stories and you can see that when you look at the layout of the of the museum where where the where the want or the need to do that clearly has impacted the way that the uh, museum is laid out where where the you know visitors just have that little place that they can take an eye into um to experience something at, on a very personal basis you know from from a from a technology point of view, um you know this is something where it comes later. First of all, Steve always goes through these stories and then looks at the technology. obviously, Sometimes you don't need it. Sometimes you don't want technology to support the story. What is nice from our point of view is that the introduction of of our new of our new technology means that it isn't as much budget driven as it used to be. Because a lot of this was also budget driven, where you could only have so many, you know, what we know as e-tickets in in the uh, themed attractions industry, where you have big events that need a lot of expensive equipment. Um, we're really at the point now where the cost of the technology on the whole and i'm not talking about you know the big event productions and and even within museums big theaters and that kind of thing but on the whole the budget no longer drives that which i think gives steve more creative freedom to really work through what he would like to do without being as restricted by um, by other factors the technology is there we can do more things than we used to be able to do and it's more affordable, which means that you know he he doesn't he doesn't need to concentrate on that aspect as much.
1: A good example of that, Daniel, is I'm going to go back to Truman. We've done a lot of and we're doing a lot of other projects as well, but Truman is a good example here. In the intro experience, where you walk through this space along a curved wall, a 35 foot curved wall, and you're thrust back into the period of time. When before Truman is president, when he's just being uh, becoming a vice presidential candidate with FDR, and we throw you into that world, and I think we have the 35 foot wall is made up of two projectors and uh, MAD systems video server. And originally we had thought before MAD was involved, we thought, oh, well, I'll have two video servers running in sync back in the control room. And then when Maris came on board, he said, no, let's we have a video server that can be local. To save a lot of uh, cost on cabling, and it'll run it, it, it not just runs in sync, but it can handle two channels of video. So, this is where, you know, knowing the technology, as Maris is saying, and some of that technology being more cost effective than a little older technology is really important to know about.
2: And the other thing that it also did is it that that is actually a really good example because that wall in you know 10 years ago would have most likely been done with with graphics with fixed graphics um because of the cost would have been prohibitive at that point um what it means is that we're now using multiple video projectors to provide the storytelling which means that you you're not stuck with this is how many words or this is how many images that I can get onto a fixed graphic. You can actually tell a story um, sequentially, time sequentially, which gives you more of a canvas, which gives you more opportunities. And that is, um, you know, another step towards what we're majoring on at this point, obviously, which is personalized media delivery. Um, Once you have a projector, if Steve wanted, or if the client at some point wanted to produce that in another language their projectors, we're no longer stuck with fixed graphics. If there's an update, if they wanted to tell the story in another way, if they felt that they wanted to add or change something in that presentation, um, it becomes a case of, of redoing some of the media or adding some media and you now have the flexibility of doing things that that you you couldn't have done 10 15 years ago because the um, the cost point would have been way too high so it, it creates it creates opportunities and these kind of approaches um, just make sure that we're better prepped for the future um, in that you know next time around a minor update will not require a whole wall to be redone and also it uh, it allows us to create a system that, should the client ever want to, will allow us for a higher level of personalization of media delivery. In principle, when people walk into that introductory area, um, if they had said at an intro kiosk, hey, we'd prefer this in Spanish or in Chinese or whatever they want, it would certainly be possible to switch that whole area over to a different language and present that same presentation in different languages. And that, that is another important thing that you know we're looking at going forward.
0: All right, so you've been sharing a lot of insights so far on the podcast on your work together with the Truman Library and Museum, Uh, but there's another exhibit within said library and museum that I really want to highlight, and that is the exhibit uh, all about the Berlin Airlift, which highlights Truman's uh, go-to transportation method during the height of World War II. Uh, I'll let y'all give even more detailed context on the history of it there and how that integrates to the project, but... I'm really curious uh, how you approached designing this one exhibit, because I think it's a great example of both of your worlds coming together and really maximizing uh, interactivity
1: and technology. Yeah. So in in this case, we're we're talking about the Berlin Airlift, as you said, and it is at the end of World War II. There was a lot of maneuvering that went on. uh, Berlin was split basically between the Allies uh, and Russia. And at one point, Russia challenges the, uh, America and the allies and puts a blockade up between East Berlin and West Berlin. And Truman, Truman's own decision was, OK, we're going to do an airlift. And Stalin thinks that America will only keep this up for a couple of months. It turns out Truman keeps it up for over a year and the allies keep it up for over a year, supplying Berlin by air with with uh, food and oil and everything you need to live. So. We were asked by the designer in this case because they tried to come up with a solution in their in a kind of a, a design world, uh, meaning a, an exhibit that didn't have media. And they said, "Can you do something with the Berlin airlift that we can't do? Because there's just too much information to parse out." And so we thought about it, and we thought about using a, 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 a tabletop with the discs, um, the, the capacitive discs that you can place on a table and use and turn the disk uh, to make the table interactive and make different parts of the airlift come alive. And Maris actually, uh, Mad Systems, fabricated these disks with a cool little plane on them. There's six of them, I think, and any two or three can be used at one time. And two or three visitors can put the disk on the table at the same time and start exploring. And they get different animations and different information about the dangers of the airlift, how much supplies were required, how it grew in efficiency over the course of of the months, the year that it was, uh, or the, over the year that it was in place for. And it's a much more engaging way in, for kids and adults to kind of learn about the airlift rather than a linear, you know, here's the origins of it, here's what happened, here's, you, know, it, you can explore it in any manner you want. And I wish we had pictures because it's a lot of fun, and the planes uh, and the little discs and planes that Mares Mar- Mad Systems made I, um, are very cool. And once this museum really opens to the public post COVID, uh, I think it'll get a lot of good press.
2: It was actually a fun. Uh, it was a fun little exhibit. It was one of those things where you know Steve came up and said, "Hey, you know, we want to do something with the Berlin Airlift. I want to use this table." Um but I want to I want to have these pucks look not just like pucks, they need to be relevant to the story. It wasn't anything huge, but the we we 3D printed uh, the shapes of these uh, of the airplanes that they used to do the airlifts, and we created the pucks. Um, they're they're conductive parts, so we had to use metal, and we had to design them in a certain way, to make them uh, to make them look nice and to make them work well. So that is that is when you get the uh, the kind of cooperation that we can provide because we have full metal working capabilities and three D printing capabilities, and and uh, we can we can build. Um, objects and we can help out with uh, these kind of small mechanical items because they're part of the av system really and create something that is unusual and so that is again you know it's not just the touchscreen you have to use these pucks in order to orient yourself and in order to make things happen it, it's fun. It it makes for something different that is definitely not something that kids will have at home. And that is definitely something that, that they will look at, at as if there's a little bit of magic involved. And that's what it's all about.
1: So that was that was good. Let me contrast this for a second. What we try not to do is to look at the, the content and assets and say, oh, a video wall would be great here. Or A big video uh, touchscreen table would be great here. We really try to get much more creative about it than just looking at the technology and using the technology explicitly. In other words, the best way I can say it, and I I may, may have said this already, is really try to embed it in your, you, the visitor's experience as you walk through the museum and make sure there's a lot of surprises. Oh, cool. This is neat. Not so much that the surprise, overwhelms the content and meaning the nature of the te- the use of technology is so cool that it overwhelms the content. You just play with it for the sake of playing, but you gotta strike that balance of visitors having these different te- experiencing these different media textures as they walk through the museum. And co- you know, again, if you contrast that with, we've got 15 touchscreens in a museum, not we, but if you have, and you have radically different content on those 15 touchscreens, guess what? The form. The touchscreen form, it's still a touchscreen. And no matter how radically different the content is on those screens, to the visitor, they see another touchscreen. And that's what we try to mix it up. That's why we try to mix it up.
2: Actually, there was another one where we did that, isn't it, Steve? The the artillery. Um, we have a, a display oh, yeah. where you can, uh, you can have an, art, an artillery piece um, where you can change the angle, you can change the uh, elevation, and you can change the charge. And you can basically control this artillery piece and make it shoot. And the fun thing here was that Steve specifically did not want a touchscreen. So we actually created some controls for this, uh, for this artillery piece, which is on a monitor. Um, the, the whole thing is a video experience, but you're controlling it through physical devices where you have a... Uh, a crank that will set up the angle and then you have a fire set up where where you actually get the satisfaction of of fire kind of as a as a as an an experience and so there's there's things like that all the way through where um they've really broken down the technology so that you haven't got repetitive use of the same technology all over the place and it, it 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 makes a difference So you really highlighted here how
0: the media design and technology support storytelling, which seems like the core goal right if you can get your integrations and your design to tell a story and use the technology not for the technology's sake but to communicate something larger the end user is going to have a more memorable experience and uh, you know you're going to get more out of your design so are there any other advancements in technology that you want to highlight or that you think are important to mention on the podcast today that you think I've done a particularly good job at advancing uh, the storytelling within museum exhibits in recent years?
2: I think that there's um, there's an awful lot going on, certainly where we're concerned at the moment. Um, I've mentioned personalised media um, earlier on because it is so important to realise that some of your some of your audience just wants top level information and that is all they want. Um, some of your audience wants to have deep knowledge, it's actually interesting. Uh, Steve and I both worked with a designer many years ago, Chris Chadbourne, um, who really split this up into three groups. And I can't remember the names that he used now, but it's basically you have the browsers um, who are the people who, you know, just want to go through and get a, get a bit of baseline information. And then you have the people who actually read the, um, the first few lines of a more detailed narrative and then you have the students who really just want to know everything and more if it's available and in order to create an environment where the adult expert can get something out of the same museum as we have school groups of of seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds coming through um, we obviously have really majored on trying to create that as a as a reality by using the facial recognition and other new technology that we're creating in order to to enable that. There's other things that have happened recently with the with the COVID um, situation that we're in: uh, touch versus touchless, or both. You know, if people want to touch, then it's fine. Um, But we also have uh, technology now where where you don't need to press a button or you don't need to touch that screen. We can use other methods to make that happen. So yes, there's an awful lot happening um, with technology. And and there's there's one other thing that I really want to touch, which is um, ADA related. We are majoring on really trying to push better solutions for ADA, um, but in such a way that the overall design does not need to be ADA specific. Um, So we want to create a situation where designers can design whatever they want for the general public, but whereby we create proper solutions based on science and based on real needs Um, to support people who need a little bit more help, be it turn volume up, reorganizing buttons on an interactive to make sure that they're they're at the right height for a particular individual, whether that be someone in a wheelchair or a kid, um, changing to high contrast imagery, uh, dealing with multiple languages, uh, dealing with a guidance system for the blind so that we can actually guide them around the venue and give them a like experience. And we are even currently working on on a braille reader so that, so that we can properly provide information for, for people who would prefer to receive it um, using an electronic Braille reader. So the, there's an awful lot of technology that we're currently working on that, that when we work with, with Steve um, and people like him, you know, really is something that they can integrate within new systems, within new environments, and, and which will help them being able to target more specifically information to the different um, groups of visitors that you you tend to get within museums.
0: Let's quickly get some thoughts on VR and AR, which are always in the conversation as cutting edge technologies, and uh, you know have become particularly useful during the pandemic as many experiences have had to go uh, digital. Um, so the technology has. I think become even more mainstream and more integrated uh, and definitely seen as more of an option by content creators, experience makers. So how important do you think you know VR and AR is to the broader storytelling technology portfolio? And do you find it uh, to be useful in keeping families and groups of friends together to experience things together and build that kind of community in the experience? What are your thoughts there?
1: It's a good question. And let's just say the answer or answers aren't fixed in stone. But when we look at VR, let's break it apart. VR different from, you know, uh, virtual reality different from augmented reality versus versus mixed reality, MR. So let's take VR for a second because VR is about using goggles or some type of headset um, as opposed to AR, which is more, could be more uh, smartphone based. And the challenge is, okay, if you are in a museum and you create a VR experience in a space, it's a one-on-one experience. And okay, there are just okay to have one-on-one experiences, but now you're transporting me via VR to another world. Do I want to come to a museum and be transported to another world? I can do that online at home. I can kind of tie into the same experience. And actually museums could make a, a specific VR experience for people at home encouraging them to come into the real museum. But in the museum, we keep questioning, is there a good opportunity? Are there good opportunities to use VR? The wired systems require a lot of maintenance and are delicate because of the fact the cabling involved. And the only thing I've been able to think of is a is a periscope on a submarine where you actually can embed the, the goggles in a device and you can look into it. But Again, it's an open, it's a good question. And it doesn't, you, you're hearing my bias, and my thoughts on it, but they're not like, this is the way it will be always. AR is a mixed bag. So if we're talking about AR that's based on your smartphone in a museum, then the question is, do you want your visitors to have their experience in the museum mediated by looking at, by another reason to look at your phone? My answer would be, I don't think so. However, What about using AR out in the world where the museum is located to help bring people into the museum? So seeing the past out today in the present that ties into the, the subject of the museum as a way of bringing visitors in, that could work very well. Again, you're hearing my biases, not the way it should be or is. Maris, you have some thoughts on that?
2: (laughs) I certainly have thoughts on it. Um, VR for me is something that in a post-COVID world, um, I am certainly not walking into a museum anytime soon and putting a public headset on my face. I mean, that is just not going to happen. Um, We've had a couple of projects recently where we are working on a post-COVID immersive solution where we're putting screens around people and immersing them into an environment but they can go in there as a group so uh, we're putting video all the way around them to create that virtual environment with a dome over the top or even a flat over the top. But this particular project we're currently working on has a 10-foot dome and so we can fit between four and six people comfortably into that space and they can enjoy things together. To me when I go to a museum with friends or with family, I really want to enjoy the experiences with my friends and with my family. And I don't want to have it as a personal experience. Um, and I think the the last thing on that is that we're now seeing prices on um, VR tumbling to the point where, you know, we're going to see more and more of it at home. So I think the magic of it really has gone. Um, and the other issue, of course, is that people at home are playing games that they might be buying for 20 bucks um, but they're multi-million dollar developments and in order to get something that is of that same quality in a, in a museum there is never a multi-million dollar budget so making sure that you can create something that is as good as or better than something that kids can have at home is is diff- is difficult Um, And as I said, I'm really just concerned about the whole post-COVID world and the fact that you're separating people and having them um, have their own experiences. It's the last thing that I want when I take my grandkids to a museum. On AR, I very much think the same way as Steve does. Um, It is hard enough to create environments and to, to create experiences where people don't grab their phone every two minutes to check their email or the Facebook or take a selfie. Um and I think that anything that causes more of that to happen takes away from the experience that you really want people to have. So for me, um yes, if a client comes along and says we want VR and we want AR, of course we'll do it. Um but it's not something that I would put in as a um as a first, you know, let's grab this as a first item out of the tool bag because, because of of all of those reasons um most certainly i agree with steve that if you can use it outside um and use it to pull people in like you give them a taster of some of the things that go on in the museum when they're outside or when they're in the area or when they're just looking at the map you know i'm going to be in independence missouri what can i do there and something comes up that um, that creates um an environment of you walking around independence and and getting just a little flavor um, absolutely, that works because you haven't got them into your environment yet. But I think that the whole point of creating these environments and creating these attractions is to, is, to, is to make sure that you give people something different. And uh, getting your phone out is, you know, not not quite what I would recommend.
1: In, in, a, in a museum setting, is what you're saying. In a, yeah.
2: in a museum setting, yes. I
1: mean, there are other settings where it works. but Sure. It's interesting that Maris kind of used the example of independence because we did at one point propose an AR app, which would kind of highlight as you travel through Kansas City in, and independence, would highlight all the places Harry Truman used to frequent mm. from bars yeah. to his haberdashery. And you would use your phone to look around for these things, and there would be a reward system. As you found them, you'd click them off, and there'd be some benefit to coming to the museum. But the whole idea was kind of where's Harry, uh, where was Harry, and the <laughs> more places you could identify where he he was, you might be invited to a, a certain cellar, you know function at the at the at the museum at some point. That's
2: actually fun. That sounds yeah, like yeah, it would idea. have been
1: it would have been great fun, but it had to it it got. It was a budgetary kind of constraint. So, but we have that concept for other museums in our back pocket, if it's appropriate.
0: All right, Maris, Steve, we're just about done with our conversation for the day. So thank you both so much for your insight so far. Uh, Just last question. Is there anything we haven't touched on in regards to media or multimedia design and integration that you think is particularly important or timely uh, for today's museum installations? And uh, why should we be keeping those things a priority?
1: There's one thing that we haven't touched on, and that is the advantage that designing media for museums has over trying to design something for multi-platform uh, use. And that advantage is, you know, as a designer, you can help determine exactly where the visitor will be, the size, how close they'll be how uh, to an image, meaning to a screen, to a projection, doesn't have to be a screen, a projection, where they will be in relation to sound. So you can really customize and tailor your experience to the specific environment. You don't have to dumb it down to... Uh, be uh, to work on the broadest the greatest number of platforms it's specific for that museum that's a wonderful thing it's liberating to know to be able to design knowing where your visitor is going to be how big the image is going to be how the sound what sound they're going to hear what kind of atmosphere you're going to create and you don't have that when you're when you're trying to produce documentaries or or for online experiences or, or even for phone your phone experience or you i guess you do know that for a phone experience
2: it's it's really interesting actually and it's something that we're we're taking advantage of when it comes to our technology it's 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 kind of funny um we developed uh, as you know steve we developed the multitasking polyphonic audio units that we have and uh, the guys have you know the guys have developed uh, or originally developed a really nice stereo unit and it worked really well and I've always wanted to expand that into multiple channels because uh, partly because of the work you and I have done and the things we've spoken about where we really want to sub you know, we, we really want to immerse people within a sound field or an environment um, one of the first um, public shows that we did uh, using this technology, um, is the is the march um, the uh, exhibition about Martin Luther King and the civil rights uh, organization that opened uh, just before COVID started? Actually, in Chicago, I'd always been asking the guys, "Hey, you know, let's let's do a version of this that is." that is multi-channel and they'd always resisted it and go like you who, who who cares about this um and in the end um i really just said look i want to try it let's do it so they did it and i came back from a trip somewhere and i had had um i'd set up a channel an a channel system in our um, edit suite and I came back, and the guy said, um, "Oh, you want to uh, you you, you want to go and sit in the edit suite? We've we've done an A channel version, and it really is actually rather nice being able to put audio all the way around you. You, know, you can you can fly something over. You can have birds in the trees. You can have a bird land. You can have a helicopter fly over do a circle." and land in front of you and do all these kind of things. So it kind of reminds you of like uh, one of the new Dolby systems. And it's exactly what Steve says. The, the issue with that for a lot of people is costs. It's too expensive to implement for something like a museum with all the licensing and orig- or origination fees to do something like that. But because we only have one theater that we're going to run this solution in, it's fixed. And therefore, we don't need to have all the complications that go with some of these multi-channel audio systems. And we've created a system that will run up to 32 channels at the moment, but we could easily expand that if we had to, where we can put the audio, where we can put the speakers anywhere you want, so we can create a true um, 3D audio environment with additional spot sounds. If you really wanted to have a sound happen in one particular location, um, you can just keep adding speakers and make that work. And funnily enough, Steve and I have been working on, a, on another project where Steve has a theater that he wants to create where there is sound all the way around you. And there's upper sounds and there's lower sounds and there's behind and to the left and to the right and transitions and all that kind of thing. So, yes, that is a, that is a new technology that that is extremely well suited to fixed location theaters. It It's it's it makes it affordable and again it gets to the point where um, budget no longer needs to drive what we can or cannot do. It's a relatively affordable and therefore uh, multi-image, multi-screen, um, multi-audio channel and uh, environments and creating those environments is certainly one of the toolkits that I know Steve is um, excited about. And we are too. It, it does make for some ex- um, some pretty incredible um, ex- experiences. It's fun to do.
1: It, and it all goes back to you can't have that experience at home yep, or on your phone. And that's ultimately our collective challenge in doing good multimedia design for museums.
2: Telling the story and telling it well, right?
1: And in a way you, they, you can't be told in any other venue. Yep.
0: And team, on that note, I think we are done with our podcast today on media design in the museum space and how technology is supporting cutting-edge storytelling. Thank you to both of our guests. Again, we've been chatting with Maris Ensing, founder of Mad Systems, and Steve Bressler, founder and creative director for Manadnock Media. Uh, Steve, if folks want to find out a little bit more about Monadnock Media, some of the work that y'all are doing in these various spaces, how can they learn more or get in touch?
1: They can go to monadnock.org at our website. They can see our projects, uh, get a sampling of what we're currently working on, as well as our past projects. And they're welcome to email me at steve at monadnock.org as well.
0: Fantastic. And Maris, same question on your end. If people want to find out more about some of the work that Mad Systems is doing in the museum space or potentially get in touch for your services, how can they do so?
2: Have a look at madsystems.com or get in touch, um, Maris at madsystems.com or pick up the phone and give us a call. We're always around to answer questions and to start conversations. Fantastic.
0: Steve, Maris, thanks again for joining us. Looking forward to our next conversation.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
2: Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Daniel. Bye bye, guys. Bye bye.
0: And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Mad About AV, a Mad Systems podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and heading to our website, MadSystems.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.